Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And my name is Alex Mellon. And this is episode 77 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 77, as you heard from our intro, we are pleased and excited to welcome as a guest to the podcast, Alex Mellon, who is going to be talking about an article uh, in Christianity Today about memorization and some theories, scientific theories behind it. And the three of us are going to be dialoguing a bit about that. But before we get into that topic, I'm going to provide a little bit of an update for the PNW District. We have our meet number one coming up this weekend. And after we conclude talking about memorization with Alex, uh, we are going to dive into, well, not dive into, it's not actually a deep dive. It's really more an update on a project that Scott and I and two other folks have been working on that we are very excited about because it could be really cool, um, but we wanted to kind of bring you guys up to date on what's going on there. So with that said, uh, first, the announcements of what's going on in PNW. We have the PNW District Meet num uh, number one coming up this weekend. We had our first preseason meet, I don't know, about a month ago or something like that. Uh, and so this is our first official uh, district meet uh, coming up. The, the the stats and stuff do count for year-to-date averages and so forth. It is coming up this Friday and Saturday, October 23rd and 24th. Unfortunately, it is virtual uh, because we still have to run things virtually, at least in the, in the short term. Uh, so it is going to start, uh, it's going to generally be fairly similar to in-person meets of the past in terms of time frame, although slightly shortened. We're going to start at 6 p.m. on Friday, and then our start time on Saturday morning is going to be uh, 9 o'clock in the morning rather than 8.30, which I think is more traditional. And we're also going to be ending a little bit earlier on Friday. We're going to be doing a prelim round and a bracket round, but the bracket round is going to be much shorter. It's going to be, uh, you know, sudden death for each of... No, it's not sudden death. You have to lose twice, I think, for the bracket. Uh and now I'm not remembering exactly how it works. Anyway, it's a shortened bracket than what you might be used to. Um, so there's only going to be one, two, three, four, five, six uh, quizzes in total to get to the final uh, quiz of the top three teams. Because of this and because of the nature of virtual and because of the nature of the number of teams that are registering, we're going to be counting prelims for year-to-date averages, but we are not going to be counting, at least in district meet number one, we are not going to be counting brackets for year-to-date averages. So that's kind of how things shake out in that regard. Um, other than that, everything else should be relatively normal, as you would expect from a virtual meet in PNW over the last, I don't know, however many months we've been doing uh, virtual meets. If you have any questions whatsoever, uh, toss me an email or toss the show e an email or pop into the Slack channel or talk to your coach or any number of other folks and want to make sure everyone is aware of everything that's going on. And we'll proceed on that at six o'clock Friday evening. Feel free to pop into Slack a little bit early if you want to test out your mic or video setup or anything like that. Um, although for quizzers, video is not that important since it remains off most of the time. But if you want to test out any of your equipment or setup or whatever, you can do that. Um, I'll be lurking there probably as early as five o'clock, uh, maybe even earlier than that, if anybody is interested in um, getting their stuff verified out. All right, so with that said, let's move on to talking about memorization with our special guest, guest um, Alex Mellon. Alex is from originally the Central District, um, but she's moved to the Midwest District, still participates pretty strongly in quizzing, which is awesome. And uh, she is uh, going to be talking to us about an article that she was the copy editor on that appears currently in the October issue of 2020's uh, Christianity Today. So Alex, welcome to the show. And why don't you give us a um, kind of a rundown on what this article is all about? All right. Uh, thanks, Griffin, for having me. Uh, <clears throat> this piece does appear in the October uh, print magazine. It can also be found online. Uh, Title is The Best Way to Memorize Scripture Has Little to Do with Learning Words, How Neuroscience Can Help Us to Be Doers of the Word. It was written by K.J. Ramsey, and she just takes a, a neuroscientific look at the way, the different ways that the brain stores information, and from that, how we should be 
working on memorizing and learning the Bible in order to retain it, not just as a collection of facts in our mind, but as a part of our our living and growing story as our, our relationship with God grows and deepens. So uh, she first talks about how her personal experience uh, with different kinds of memorization shaped her childhood. Her church would uh, memorize chapters as a group together. Uh, she writes, our pastor printed verses on colored paper and posted them on every wall and bathroom stall. Each Sunday we would gather in the warmth of the setting sun, sitting in lawn chairs in quiet Michigan backyards, where word by word we repeated passages of scripture together. And she recalls how later in life these, these passages come back to mind when she's struggling and needs them. But then she also mentions that when she attended a Christian school, she had to memorize uh, verses to check off, put little stars on the chart, as she put it, and uh, had to have the verses memorized for weekly quizzes. But those did not stick in her mind the way the other things that she learned at her church did. And she describes, uh, as in a neuroscientific look, she uh, defines these two types of memorization as semantic memory, which is learning facts, learning a list, uh, committing details to memory. And the other one is autobiographical memory. So that would be embodied, we'd call it heart knowledge, uh, experiential knowledge. And uh, some studies have shown that the first type, semantic knowledge, semantic memory, doesn't stick with us very long. It doesn't stay in a place in our minds and our hearts where we can actually apply those facts to our lives. Um, so then she turns to uh, some different examples of how we can go about uh, building more of an autobiographical memory as opposed to semantic memory of scripture. Um, she interviews this one professor who uh, describes uh, a couple of ways that I thought totally match how we approach, a lot of us approach memorizing for Bible quizzing already. He says, read this out loud so that the muscles of your chest and throat and mouth have to form these words so that your ears register them, so that your eyes see them on the page. You want to engage your whole body. And uh, he also, she also, uh, the author makes a, a note also about how these days we're so used to adding to our semantic knowledge with the aid of computers and Google and uh, being able to look up information quickly and how that uh, may aid our semantic memory but does not aid our biographical memory because we are not putting in the work to learn that information. We're simply going and uh, referencing it when we need it. But then if we ever reach a point where we cannot access it, then we won't have it uh, deep in our autobiographical memory. I have some questions here. Sure. So how much do you think the concepts of semantic and autobiographical memory might map to or be an analogy to or analogous to short-term and long-term memory? I think that's pretty similar, uh, sort of like we, the way you hear a quizzer say, oh, I, I crammed these verses or I, I, I read over this really quickly. That, that might compare to a semantic uh, memorization where you're simply trying to nail down uh, several facts in a row or several verses in a row. But um, autobiographical memory, I think, is a new way of looking at long-term memory for me, I think. Uh, it has to do with the memories that you're making as you're learning or as you're reviewing. Um, so I think anything that does stay in your long mem long-term memory, I think the author is saying that it has to then have been autobiographically learned. Um, and just look, I think the... But what we can take away from the article is how to have those experiences that that put the verses into our minds in that way. Sure. Do you think, is it sort of like mm -hmm. a one, do you see it as sort of two different ways to approach memorizing scripture or does one, or can one, or is it necessarily true that they are different or does one proceed or can one proceed the other one? Or is mm -hmm. it true that one absolutely precedes the other one? And I'll give you a, sort of an example here. Um, when I was in junior high of really, really long time ago, um, I started, I, uh, we were reading Shakespeare like Hamlet and I couldn't for the life of me understand 
what was going on. <laughs> like, like 90% of what was on the page was like, well, these are nice sounding words, but I have absolutely no idea. Like, I know what each word means, but I have absolutely no idea when you string them together, what this person is talking about kind of thing. And so what my teacher recommended I do was actually memorize a couple of the soliloquies. And I'm like, well, okay, interesting. So I, I did that because I was a nerd. And so, I mean, in, in that regard, I was memorizing what I think would be semantic, right? Because I had absolutely, well, not absolutely, I had very little comprehension of what the sentences were saying, but I was sort of memorizing a sequence of words. So it was very similar to me, like I'm, I'm a violinist. So to me, it was very similar to like, you know, memorizing music. It didn't really mean anything. It was more like memorizing the sounds of words or the shapes of words and how they connected together and so forth. But in so memorizing it, and it wasn't actually the memorization process itself, which I think is probably semantic um, based on what I understand from the article, but after semantic memorization, because the the words or the phrase or the phrases really were in my head, I then sort of had these epiphany epiphany moments much later, like like you know days later, where I'm like, oh, I get what Hamlet's talking about here. I get what Polonius is talking about here. Like Ophelia, I totally get what she's saying here. You know, kind of stuff. And it was more like like once I had gotten through putting the the semantics in my head, then my brain could then figure out like, oh yeah, this is actually what they're talking about. And then that kind of reinforced the, my memory of it. Or is that autobiographical or is autobiographical different than that? Yeah. Uh, the author doesn't talk much about uh, a situation like what you described, but I've definitely experienced that in, in my time quizzing that I've, uh, Romans chapter five comes to mind as one that I, I really didn't have a grasp on until I really sat down and took all the words and put them together and put them in my head a few at a time. <clears throat> and I don't think that that's necessarily uh, the wrong answer at all. Uh, one of the quotes in this article says, uh, heart knowledge is embodied. And I think how we approach the what we've learned even after we've memorized it can contribute to that that's that's my extrapolation from uh what what is written in this article but i think it has to do with how you engage maybe you memorized it first as a set of words but as you repeat it as you quote it to a friend or a parent or a coach as you say the answers in practice i think all of that builds on itself to start to create that autobiographical sense that you are experiencing the words that you're building memories around them. So I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the only way I memorize more or less is by saying a sentence over and over until it sticks. But I think how you engage with that in the days and weeks to come is what matters. It's interesting because I definitely memorized very semantically looking at the definitions from this article, but I really, really just brute forced it to the ex to the point where it was pretty solidly in my memory, and I would call it in long-term memory. Um, but I remember Hebrews and First and Second Peter was the last year that I quiz. That was the material, and I just memorized it purely for competition's sake, and it was very semantic. And then it was the next cycle. I was coaching internationals and helping someone else study, and I was like, "Oh, you know, I like I almost looked at the material differently." Um, and I was like, wow, Hebrews 7 has got some really interesting things in it that I never noticed at all when I was quizzing. Um, but that memory is part of it. Yeah. That and, I, you may ask, sometimes I find myself asking whether, whether quizzing should look more at meaning behind the passages. Of course, the goal is to, to learn the passages, but at what, uh, what length of time, and I'm talking years, do we want to be able to recall and apply. And I think the, the focus on this article is the application, the, the when the spirit can call it to mind in a situation where you might have need of it. Um, and, and it's not something maybe a quizzer can see in eight years of quizzing, but as you said, years and years down the road, that it will, uh, the, the type of memory, the type of experiences they had with that material might uh, be different. And, and Scott, you even mentioned you, you did quiz over that material, then you must have answered questions about it or reviewed it at some point. That that all contributes, I think. Yeah, and I mean, 
the stuff that I know the best is the stuff that I had it that I made errors on, right? Because there's a specific experience that is linked to that that part of the material. So I think that's that's definitely part of it, right? That was a an ex right. yeah, an experience. That's, that's actually part of the article uh, that I didn't uh, <laughs> mention earlier too. Uh, KJ Ramsey mentioned uh, there's a special way that uh, triggers in our brain actually to help us uh, hang on to those memories better. It's, I don't understand it well myself, but uh, looking at that section of the article, it says, what helps us from being observers of scripture to participants' story? And she quotes an expert who says it's it's suffering, but not specifically suffering as we would think of, of maybe a pain in our life. But when we suffer and experience, she writes, the cognitive dissonance of realizing some things we thought were true are not. Our brains release a hormone called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that uh, hormone is actually what helps build new neural connections in our brains. So when we do something like failing, which can equal making an error or, or misquoting or having that that memory of getting something wrong, it it's definitely a good thing for us. And, and God wired our brains that way. And I think this is one reason that I encourage people to deal with the material in as many different ways as they can, because some people are more visual or um, um, auditory than, than other people. Um, but if you are reading the material, uh, saying it out loud, listening to it, writing it, listening to other people speak it, um, it's going to make it easier for your brain to hold on to it. And I think you can view memory from the pure utilitarian competitive aspect of quizzing. Like, I want to remember stuff better so that I can score better. But you are serving the same purpose as, like, like you are just cementing it further into your head, and it will be of use to you in other ways later. <laughs> so you, you, can, you can almost have, it doesn't really matter which of the two motivations you have, you can kind of serve both of them. Right. And and over the course of an entire quiz season, I think anything that would be in what we would consider a short-term memory would disappear without further review. Sure. And then the and I've definitely noticed that the more mo most of my quiz years I could say that the more I studied, remember it today. That's not a one-to-one -one correlation. There may be uh a, some passages that I remember and and think, why Why do I have that specific verse all of a sudden? And there might be a, a specific memory. Maybe I memorized it in a different location. Maybe I was in the car or with a friend, or maybe it came up at quiz practice as a topic of discussion, and that's why it's still there. Well, and the, you're talking about location drifts me into sort of a different series of questions. So like for both of you, I mean, Scott, I think you've, you've mentioned this just now a little bit, but I wanted to ask both of you, um, you know, sort of point blank here, when you guys are memorizing for quizzing, did you approach it and do you approach it since we're doing adult quizzing now? Um, do you approach it from a purely brute force semantic method? And then after this, the semantic method is either concluded or at least mostly concluded, then you start to shift it into sort of, um, maybe it's that autobiographical, but I'd call it like the, the owning of the verses, or do you guys have different tools beyond that that you use? I'd say I, most of the time would brute force, what, what you would call brute force, just going over and over in repetition. I don't think that's what the author is telling us not to do necessarily, uh, because she describes how that they would learn it at their church. It would be printed, taped up on the walls. They would be reciting it together. Presumably that they had already at, in some way, shape or form learned it to be able to recite it back. I think that's where it always has to start unless you're maybe a very good auditory learner who can listen and absorb from listening or uh, from writing, perhaps writing the verses out on a piece of paper might cement it in some people's minds. But I think the, the repetition and the engagement with it then is what passes it from semantic, maybe not from semantic to autobiographical, but from short term into either semantic or autobiographical. That's just my guess. Yeah. I mean, I just, I pure brute forced it. I was just viewing it as utility, like, I'm memorizing for the competition and I dealt with the material in every way possible. And so it could be that those, the different ways that I dealt with it is what moved it into more of that autobiographical um, or long-term memory. Um, 
but I'm trying to yeah, I just dealt with it in, in, in every which way. There's several, several points in this article. The author is quoting different, different experts who describe all of these, these ways of memorizing that I've seen quizzers do writing, writing the words out, coming up with memory aids to remember what order of words things come in or making sign motions. Like I've heard all quizzers do that, doing those different things. And that's, Exactly what they're saying. We've already, I think, absorbed some of the technique of how to um, absorb the material in an autobiographical way, maybe from a utilitarian need of of longer retention or quicker absorption. And one thing that I would do is find similar words or passages that the brain might mix up. And by viewing them together or next to each other, I would devise ways to keep them separate. So maybe a certain material had remember, remembered, remembers, remembrance. Uh, and But by listing all of them together, I could really narrow or um, keep them separate. Or in Hebrews, when it says um, there's a lot of hearts and minds and put and keep and throne of God, um, throne of the Lord, there's a lot of repetitive passages. And I would always list them out and make sure that I knew this one's in chapter 8, this one's in chapter 11. But one interesting anecdote that I have is, so in PNW, the the quizzers that qualify for internationals need to pass a quoting requirement for the material. And for many years, I listened to a lot of quizzers quote. And one year I was listening to someone, and I don't think she was struggling, but she kind of sheepishly asked. She looked at me and she said, I typically quote a few of these chapters with a British accent. Is that okay if I do that to you? And she blitzed through those chapters. That's like she great. knew. She knew them better than any of the other chapters. And I think she might have just done that while quoting through stuff be- to, like, combat boredom. Like, just, you know, of the poor rep- the pure repetition. Um, but she knew those chapters better than the other- anything else. Interesting. Have we, either of you guys, when you're memorizing, do you use any techniques like memory castles or anything like that? I was, I was going to bring that up because the, like, the memory, the world or the U- U.S. memory champions exclusively use memory palaces but yet i've never come across a quizzer that said like oh yeah i definitely use memory palace. can you explain that griffin yeah so um there's a great great book about this um fairly recent um moonwalking with El- not elvis moonwalking with einstein um I, if you haven't read it, I, I heartily recommend it. It's basically this, it's basically the story of auto, it's an autobiographical book. Um, so the, the writer of the book basically explains that more or less on a dare, he decided to go from sort of normal human, no, nothing particularly exceptional about him in terms of his memory to winning first place in the United States memory championship. Um, and, and basically how he did it in very short order, like, like just a, a couple of years or something like that. Um, and it's, it's, it's written by him about that experience. And it is, so it's, it's got this sort of autobiographical feel to it, but it also has a, um, he, he weaves in all of these, um, tools that he and others in the memory universe use to kind of memorize things and retain things usually ludicrously quickly uh, because that's part of the the memory uh, uh, championship. So you'll get a list of like, you know, a hundred words in at random and you have to memorize them in like a couple of minutes and recite them in order and that sort of stuff. And so like, well, how on earth do you do that? And he basically talks through some of these tools. One of the tools that he talks about is, is either a memory castle or a memory palace or, or something along those lines. Um, the term memory castle is a fairly recent term. This is actually a, a tool that goes way, way, way back to like ancient Rome and even prior, probably into uh, the 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 um, Greek de- uh, uh, debates and oratory and so forth that were uh, going on, uh, uh, you know, pre Christ. Uh, when they didn't have, you know, a Xerox machine where they could just print off a copy of their speech and and no teleprompters or anything. And so what they would do is um, they would imagine a, uh, a either a real place or a fictitious place that ha- a building that has many rooms and they would walk for in their mind, they would walk from one room to the other and have in each room a series of things connected to that physical location so like how you would you you would you could memorize an entire speech or an entire concept of of several speeches all together you could memorize um 
you know, a book this way, that kind of stuff, where you're taking chapters and putting them into a certain building, into a certain sequence of steps. And so you might walk into this imaginary room and see a desk. And in each drawer of the desk would be a different concept in a particular order. And, and you would memorize it that way and so forth. Um, and I mean, there's all different, oh, there's all sorts of different ways of, of going about, you know, building various different memory castles and how you leverage them and connect them. There's also things like the major system, um, where the major system is is super old, but this is essentially where you take concepts and you tie them to sounds that are connected to letters. So the the number one is a T sound. And so you might imagine somebody wearing a tie and doing or or holding the thing that you're trying to memorize so if you're if you're you're if you're trying to memorize that number let's say you're you're trying to memorize a shopping list of 10 items and the first item on the list is a um a container of milk you would imagine somebody wearing a suit and tie holding a container of milk because you're able to vi you're you're able to remember something visually better than semantically and so therefore now you've got this image of a guy wearing a tie holding a thing of milk and you've previously memorized a major system where you're connecting tie to t to one therefore you can you can go bi-directional it, it sounds very convoluted but you can memorize lists extraordinarily fast and they stick with you like with very little effort for a very long period of time but anyway the reason i bring up the whole memory castle idea in in regards to memorizing scripture is that um uh, I think I, I sort of inadvertently discovered this on a trip to or from Great West where we were memorizing, uh, I forget what the material was, but we were memorizing something on the way to and back from Great West. And I distinctly remember weeks later reading one of the verses or, or a section that we memorized and distinctly like seeing in my head, like, oh yeah, we're just east of, of Moses Lake, you know, kind of stuff along this trip coming back kind of thing. Um, and so like, like memorizing in that location kind of tied this thing that has absolutely nothing to do with East uh, Moses Lake tied those two things together in my mind. And it was able, I was able to recall it a whole lot easier. And so one of the things I would do is I would imagine uh, trips in my head of like, okay, I'm, I'm in Seattle, I'm driving to Portland and I would imagine various different stops along the way. And then I would memorize say James connected to, you know, here's chapter one, here's chapter two, here's chapter three, you know, connecting my way down. And then I get through the end of James by the time I get to Portland kind of stuff. And so amusingly enough, I can't drive through Kelso without thinking about the very end of chapter three and the very beginning of chapter four of James. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's a weird, a weird thing. So I'm wondering if you guys have experienced that. Um, do you think that would be a benefit or a drag? What do you guys think about that? I, I definitely have experienced what you're describing, that there's a place in your head when you have learned a, a verse or a chapter in a certain location. I think, like you described with your trip, that's that's experiential, that's autobiographical, that ties to a specific point in your memory. And I don't, I can't say, because it sounds like this uh, the memory palace uh, really, really works well, but I would suggest, I, I would think that a physical place that you you literally are traveling to or have that experience with as you learn would be more effective. Um, and I don't know, you, you described this memory competition as uh, being given a very short amount of time to learn maybe a list, and it doesn't sound like there's any incentive to, to retain that list past the competition. So I would argue that that sort of memorization does falls definitely under semantic and there are definitely real world applications for that type of quick learning memory skill there's definitely professions where you would want to be able to learn a lot of things very quickly and hold them for a specific period of time but do those become part of who you are and and do they as as christians if we want to shape ourselves to be like jesus do are we looking to be able to rattle off a list or do we want to have something that's going to stay in our lives for a very long time yeah, I think one key difference for that we see in quizzing is that um, it is not a simple list of discrete bits of knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. It's a lot more unstructured when you get to the total material and 
I have no idea what the word count in a material must be, but then you add in references and you add in question types and you add in, um, it could start anywhere, you know, hypothetically. And I think it makes it a lot tougher logistically to leverage the memory palace thing, uh, concept or method. Um, because I know like at, at the memory competition, one thing they have to do is memorize it's one or two decks of cards that have been shuffled. So even there, like two decks of cards is 104 discrete items to memorize. And then they leverage the memory palace that they've kind of set up in advance to map each card that they see to a specific room or setting that they've already set up. And I think memory palaces do work great for something like that because we are visual and they can set up these memory palaces that are extremely vivid, right? That's the key is make everything as vivid and detailed so that you remember, you know, the color of the upholstery and all the little items that are sitting there and the weather outside and all this stuff builds, I think it really builds almost that autobiographical memory for these specific discrete items. Now, if you were trying to memorize a a more discrete list of something like reference multiple answers or unique words in a chapter or something like that, I think you could definitely leverage a lot of the ideas of a memory palace. But I think if I was to try, I've never tried to, but if I was to try to do it, I would struggle deciding what are my discrete bits of information, um, each of which I'm going to assign to a location. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to do it based on verses or something. So like, like what, one of the things I did to memorize a deck of cards was I took the major system and I embedded it over the top of a memory palace. So I basically took um, a, a walk around the outside of my house and then a walk inside of my house and put together 52 locations. And then I took the major system and overlaid that to a deck of cards. And so then to memorize uh, the, the deck in the moment of memorization, um, I would see a card, convert that to a major system, which would then, uh, or a major system symbol, which I would then place within a location of the memory palace. And of course that works really, really well and really, really fast. So like you can, you can memorize a deck of cards almost as fast as you can thumb through them. Um, and I mean, some people can do it even faster than that. I, I never got, you know, hyper nerdy about it. I got only slightly hyper nerdy about it. Um, but I mean, that's information that I know ahead of time. I can symbolize each card very rapidly based on a, on a predefined system. And I've already got my memory palace set up that I'm constantly like either, you know, cleaning and then refreshing and cleaning and refreshing and so forth and keeping it very vivid like you're talking about. So I don't think that would would work at all in terms of memorizing scripture. But I think what you can do is it it could be helpful in terms of memorizing sequence, not so much reference. I think you could use a major system to memorize a a reference pretty well because you could take a number converted into a symbol and place the symbol into a memory palace location that you've memorized in sequence. And then at that memory palace location, you can then overlay the actual verse itself. But I still think you have to go back to basically more or less semantic memorization of that verse. But if you plant the semantic memorization of that verse within the memory location, I think it actually might be helpful. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just hypothesizing here, but it it, it might be something, you know, if quizzers are listening to this, might be something interesting to try memorizing while going for a walk um, in a park or something, and then placing verses at different sections of that walk in the park and just see if it helps in recall later or something. Yeah, I I have, I will say I've seen the closest that I can think of that I've seen a quizzer actually do on this type of thing is uh, if you've seen a quiz quizzer who's memorized the way their quiz book looks. If you've ever seen them answering, they may be holding something in their hand or you may see them making the motion of flipping actual pages, though there's no book in front of them. They're, they've learned what their book looks like so well that they can go page to page and know what's written in different spots on it. I don't know whether that's what you call a photographic memory or whether they've been embodied some of that palace idea and just tied it onto their quiz book and maybe their quiz book has uh, highlights or scribbles or doodles or colors that help them tie things together that way that was definitely one way that i recalled knowledge and i don't have a photographic memory it was just the pure time of looking at material in the same like in the same physical book 
that I would recall where it was on the page and that would help me remember it. And there's a new way, it created a new way that I would mix up material and that's if material was located at similar spots on different pages. You know, if it was like, oh, it's on the right side, about three quarters of the way down and there's a new chapter about halfway down. I would like mix up verses that met those criteria. Right. I But I do still think there's a, separate from a, a mind palace and maybe this is going on a walk would emphasize this more but there's a physical interaction a kinetic uh, you're not just diving into your mind you're you're spending time with a physical item you're turning pages you're highlighting you're doing i think there's a definite benefit to engaging the rest of your body as you as you memorize Another example of memory palaces is in the BBC series Sherlock. There's an episode where the antagonist leverages memory palaces to remember information. I vaguely recall that episode, but it's been so long and I did not place it within a memory palace. I cannot recall exactly what happened. (laughs) I was so excited. I called it like a third of the way into the episode. I'm like, he doesn't have a vault. It's not a physical vault. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not necessarily advocating anybody leverage like the the major system or something, but I think memorizing Loki can be potentially helpful for larger sequences. Um, but if for no other reason than the the you know learning about how the ancients memorized massive amounts of information um, and and full on stories like word perfect stories, you know, uh, because they didn't have a you know the Gutenberg uh, yet. Um, I definitely would recommend moonwalking with, um, I keep saying Einstein. It's really not, or no, it is Einstein. I, I've, I keep thinking moonwalking with Elvis, but it has nothing to do with Elvis. It's moonwalking with Einstein, which by the way, has absolutely nothing to do with moonwalking the moon or Einstein, but it's rather, um, or the dance that's, move. right. Or the dance move at all. It's entirely based on that was, those were some of the, not the Loki, but those were some of the, of the majors, uh, that the author, uh, put together. I have much more like simplistic majors in my head. So like, you know, Ty for, for one, Noah for two, Ma for three, you know, uh, law for five, uh, like a legal system for five, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, bees for nine and, and, you know, ice for the teens and so forth. So it's all bizarre. Um, but like, like it does make a lot of sense once, once you read it. So I, I do recommend, you know, quizzers read the book if for no other reason than to, you know, you can, you'll get like 10, well, eight to 10 pretty good tools that you might be able to leverage outside of quizzing. And maybe one or two of those tools can be, you know, really powerful inside quizzing. And if nothing else, um, you can develop some really great party tricks as a result. I, I always think it's fascinating. Just like the book was so enjoyable to me because it's someone engaging in a competitive event. You know, they just found out about it. I got to try to win. It's just, it's, I do love that. And and it's like, it's, it's purely based on like a dare, basically. Like he finds out about it and somebody says, oh yeah, I don't have a particularly good memory. Um, so it doesn't matter if you don't either, like you can still win. Um, it has nothing to do with that. That's the other thing I should, I should mention. I'm jumping all over the place. Um, one of the things that the author repeatedly comments on in the book is that he doesn't think he has a particularly good memory. And most of the people who compete to for the title of Grandmaster of Memory actually don't have great memories either. They have just, they would describe themselves as relatively average, you know, in terms of their memory. But what they've done is they've learned tools and tricks and gimmicks to be able to do some really cool things in, in short order. Now we don't do that in quizzing, right? Like we're not memorizing a deck of 52 cards or two decks or five decks or anything like that. It's much different. We have a lot longer to prepare. So a lot of these things don't, a lot of these tricks don't exactly work, but I think there's some corollaries to two devices that would work for us. I just keep thinking when you, you describe Again, the types of things that they're supposed to be memorizing, it really truly rewards that semantic memory process that is opposite of what uh, the author of this article would describe as as being able to hide the word in your heart. So I, I would push back a little bit on that. Like you might be able to learn a list of questions or verse numbers, but um, I don't think that type of speed memorizing should be uh, encouraged too strongly, I guess, for Bible. Because in... Uh, one of the big 
thrust of this article is, is, is slow down. Don't offload the process to a computer or to a device, but live your memory and engage with everything with as much of yourself as you can. Yeah, I agree. I'd, I'd say what I'm talking about with these devices is actually a way of speeding up the semantic process so that you can then take it to an autobiographical faster. Not that the autobiographical part should be sped up, but it, but that, that you get over the semantic part as rapidly as possible so that you can spend more time actually making the words matter to you. Right. So the idea, like if, if I, and it's almost like you're starting by building an autobiographical like system of Loki or whatever, you know, tools there are then applying the words so that you can get to them semantically very quickly and then have more time to dwell on them. Right. Mm. Does that make Potent sense? I think so. I, I don't know if there's such a distinct divide though, between semantic and autobiographical. I think sometimes the time that you do spend lugging away, I th it maybe even contributes to that element of suffering that was described the, mm. the the trial and the pressure that you're putting upon yourself might might actually be part of what helps helps you learn it better i know for me when i was quizzing uh inexplicably well i'm going to try to explain i did better the years with a greater amount of material i think when i could memorize the material quicker and easier i just spent less pure hours with it and and no matter what way I was studying, whether it was hours spent at the beginning of a, a quiz month memorizing those materials, or whether it was hours later, I don't know if I would spend the hours after it was already in my semantic memory to reviewing or writing extra cards or going over some extra questions, because I would feel like it was already there. But when it took me a long, long time to put the words down, I think those hours still came back to benefit me. I could see that. I think I did better in years of longer material just because I figured fewer people were going to be able to memorize the the material. And if I just had a, like a stronger will, then I would be rewarded. Take the psychological approach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like when it came to John 17, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so repetitive with nothing to hook my brain into. But I'm literally going to quote this 200 times. And I don't know if anyone else is going to do that. <laughs> Right. And that's and that's part of pushing yourself into a harder space mentally. So I think that benefits that I totally I, I feel that tremendously. Like when I was doing competitive cycling in high school, uh, I loved mountain stages, terrifically loved mountain stages. And it wasn't because I was particularly like awesome at mountain stages, but it was because everyone else was worse at them. <laughs> um, if that makes any sense. Um, it, it was like I wasn't a I was a good cyclist, but I was not a great cyclist. And on mountain stages, the difference between me and somebody else who had been practicing on flat stages um, was like I had a a relative advantage um, just out of sheer determination, I think more than anything else. Like I didn't have technique. My technique was oftentimes terrible. Um uh, barely mediocre if, if, uh, on good days, but like, uh, I just out of sheer determination of will of like looking at a mountain stage and saying, okay, I see this as an advantage because it is a disadvantage to my competitors. And therefore I turned it into an advantage just by that thought process. I think it's similarly, like if you're looking at long material and saying, well, this is a disadvantage to others. Therefore, if I don't look at, at it as a disadvantage to me, it can be an advantage. Yeah, I agree with that. Because I never I never knew if I was better at memorizing than anybody else, and I didn't really care. I just knew that if if it was going to be longer material, if there's going to be a really really difficult chapter or maybe a crazy inconsistent quiz master or something, if I just had a better will, I figured I could get more ahead that way than I could almost any other way. Yeah, and I yeah, I don't will or just effort and time. I think I I would I, I saw that in myself. I didn't know whether it took me more or less time to, to, you know, whether I could memorize five verses faster than the next person, but I was going to work until I could do it. And that was what mattered. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, any uh, final thoughts or ideas coming out of this article or anything we've been talking about? 
I think it's just always fun to explore different ways to memorize. And um, I like hearing stories about how memorization can be about technique and not about any innate ability because a lot of people that are either new to Bible quizzing or aren't scoring particularly well will think that they just have less ability. Um, But that is almost never the case. And most people can memorize both greater quantities than they think they can, but also more effectively and efficiently than they think they can. Yeah, indeed. So Alex, um, oh, oh, no, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, I was encouraged that so many of the things that I read in this article about how other people who memorized a lot would uh, use to memorize that we'd already been, that that a lot of people I knew had already applied those to their um, memorization uh, toolboxes, I guess, that, that they'd already, that they, that we've already learned a lot about that just by terms of uh, trial and error or learning from each other. And I think uh, it, it might, for any coach hoping to not just get their quizzers to memorize more verses, but to have a good foundation for life through them that uh, emphasize the, the experience, the, the interaction and the relationship that we, that we, that we get through quizzing that you don't get from, uh, you know, being required to learn some verses for school or whatever, that we, we approach this as a group activity and a relational activity and emotional activity. And I, I love that about Bible quizzing. Very cool. So Alex, for folks who are not subscribers to Christianity today, um, obviously they should consider subscribing. But apart from that, how else could somebody access uh, this article? Uh, how would they be able to find out more about this information? Sure. I I believe I sent you the a, a link over Slack that you can uh, share maybe in this episode description that's uh, an unlocked uh, access to the article that would otherwise, if you just like Googled the title for it, would you would come up against a CT paywall uh, but if you if you want to share that article, that link in your episode description, you'd be welcome. We could do that. Sounds great. I definitely will do that. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, move on to, uh, well, is it an announcement? I don't know if, we've, I can't remember if we've announced this before. Scott, do you remember if we've talked about this project before? I don't believe we have talked about this project. We have talked about a desire to do something like this project, but I don't think we have discussed any brass tacks. Okay, interesting. So I, I, yes, we have definitely discussed at length a desire on Scott and my part and others parts as well to refactor, fix, clean up, make better the Bible quizzing rulebook. And it turns out that we have actually started a project and we are underway, not just, not just Scott and I, but, but um, Scott and I and a couple other folks, um, Zachary Tinker from the, uh, who's the chair of the CQLT is involved in the project as well. Um, Jeremy, who is uh, Jeremy Swingle, who is a frequent guest on this podcast, is also part of the project. And our goal is to essentially refactor the rule book. Basically, we are looking at it. Uh, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say we. I've been looking at it almost like it is software, and we are going through and debugging the software in a sense. So I don't know, Scott, if that's kind of the the, the same mental model that that you've had, but I, I see the rulebook as sort of a series of English based code instructions for human brains, as it were. And so we're going through looking for bugs in the software, fixing it, cleaning it up, and really doing a refactor of the rulebook, which involves a really radical rewrite, um, a really a ground up rewrite, um, uh, which sounds scary uh, to maybe some folks who are like, well, I don't think the rulebook's that bad. Why would you want to do a complete rewrite? Um, What we're attempting to do here is our goal for this project is number one, we have several goals, but our number one goal is functional functional equivalence, or what I'm I'm calling functional equivalence, which means yes, there's a lot of reorganization, yes, there's a lot of rewording, a lot of rephrasing, and so forth. But we're going to do our absolute level best to not change things such that there is no practical. Dif- Let me rephrase that. We are going to go about our work such that the end product, when it is deployed and used 
quizzing will not be substantially different, if at all different. Like our goal is to basically have it be the outcome is exactly the same. The other, the, the, another way to look at this is to say, if you have our new refactored rule book on one hand, and you have the existing rule book on the other hand, and you have two different quizzes, one using rule book A and one using rule book B, they should be exactly the same. There should be no difference between the actual process and the rules. It's really just a, a change of how they're written, how they're organized, and we're cleaning up a lot of the sort of the bugs inherent in the system. Now, that I think is going to have some positive things. Uh, as some positive outcomes. And if you want to, you know, a deep dive on what those are, you should probably listen to some of the podcasts that Scott and I uh, recorded around our um, taking umbrage with various different things in the rule book, because <laughs> we went into some depth on some of those, uh, some of those bugs that we think are there and we think will be uh, resolved that way. And I think as a result of going through this, this project, we're going to see a, um, a benefit to, you know, quizzing them as a result of that. But in addition to this, one of the things that's going to be really nice about having this project done is that on a go forward basis, if and when there's any time we need to have a rulebook change, what we can do is actually use tools and, and technology that's part of GitHub. Um, which is where all of this content is going to live. We're writing it predominantly in Markdown in a project on GitHub. Therefore, if and when there are rulebook changes that are necessary, these can be done as either forks with merge requests or pull requests or with uh, branches off of master and so forth within the GitHub universe. There's ways for people to be notified about them, comment on them, uh, disagree, come up with different changes that they want to have happen. And all of it is done in a fully transparent way. Um, and if you're overwhelmed by that idea, if you're like, if you're not really into, you know, the technology scene and don't want to learn how GitHub works, don't worry, you don't have to. Um, there will still be a way to just say, like, show me the rulebook in this version, show me the rulebook in this version, and show me the differences, you know, kind of stuff. And with with just a single button click and and pull that off. And and Zachary and I have been talking about uh, uh, making all of that tooling, or not all of the tooling, but a good chunk of that base level tooling available on the uh, the CMA Bible Quizzing uh, website as well. So that's really cool. The other neat thing from a from a just pure geek perspective is. Um, I know a lot of you out there are using CBQZ right now to run quizzes and so forth. And you'll note that the rules for quizzing are essentially encoded in CBQZ. Uh, you can edit a lot of those rules and, and customize them however you want, but they're generally coded as they are in the CMA uh, international rulebook. Um, what I am I'm working on in parallel to the rulebook project, and actually I'm not doing all that much work. Actually, Scott and uh, Zachary and Jeremy are doing a lot more work on this than I am uh, ultimately over the course of the entire project. But um, what I'm working on is a replacement of CBQZ called QuizSage. And QuizSage, I've designed it from the ground up to actually essentially consume the rulebook out of GitHub. And so what this means is rule changes that exist in the content, because we're writing it in a very specific way, rule changes that happen within GitHub automatically get deployed within QuizSage. So things like if um, some district coordinators and or a majority of districts in the CQLT are like, you know, we should change our question type distributions, or we should change uh, how multiple answers work, or, you know, maybe even get rid of multiple answers entirely. They make a change to the rule book. QuizSage automatically pulls that in and says, okay, great. I can just run with this. Uh, if you want to change how your district does scoring, uh, you, you can fork the rule book right up how you want scoring to happen and quiz sage will just automatically inject uh, import all of that stuff and and run with it so it it's kind of, it's got a lot of you know long-term upside potential so i've been blathering on a bit but scott what are your thoughts about this project so i sh i kind of want to throw in a few caveats one is that um there aren't any large changes imminent um and any 
overhauls to the rulebook or changes will go through normal CQLT approval and um, solicitation of feedback from all the districts. So there's going to be no um, random technologically savvy rulebook plopped on you in like four weeks' time. So I wouldn't worry about that. Um, and when Griffin was talking about functional equivalence, one kind of analogy that we've been throwing around is software testing. So if hypothetically the current rulebook had a software test that just said, is this the quizzing rulebook? Well, it currently answers yes, because it is. We are hoping that our reorganization and rewording of some things would still pass that exact same test. Um, and so there are definitely rules that I've been very outspoken on, like the positive, negative, multiple answer rule that I just think is terrible. Well, I'm right now reorganizing and rewriting the question types section, and I am just going to port over the language regarding that rule as it is, because I'm not here to change what currently exists. I'm just trying to tighten up the rule book and reorganize and reword in ways so that everything is clear. Now, of course, there are parts of the rulebook that are inconsistent with each other. So resolving those inconsistencies will result in a different rulebook than before. But the hope is that it is very close to functionally equivalent and that anyone using the old rulebook or the new rulebook would be able to run, in essence, the exact same sort of quiz meet or quiz competition. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on those, Griffin, before I m keep talking? No, I, I totally agree. Um, I do want to point out timeline wise, you know, Scott's totally right about the, this is not going to drop in two to four weeks. Um, this is one of those things where maybe we get the project done before Christmas, maybe. Um, but whenever it gets done, it's then going to go to the CQLT for their review. Um, they're going to sign off on it or they're going to have a chance to, you know, say, no, I don't like it or sign off on it. And then after that, it's going to go to the districts. They're going to have a, you know, an opportunity to, uh, you know, debate and argue and say yes or no. Um, we, when we get to that stage where we're actually, you know, talking with districts, we very much want to engage people who are interested in trying to find bugs with this new rule book. Right. So like we almost want to solicit people who are apprehensive and think this is a bad idea to please try it out and find ways that it is that is bad that's bad <laughs> like find find ways that we made mistakes and let us know about those things so, so everything is going to be done transparently um we're going to be you know like i said it's going to be in github so you can literally file bug reports in github um, based on things that you see coming out of this project and that's really open to anybody and uh, certainly we're going to be inviting the districts to participate that and it participate in that process and we want everybody to feel invited to participate in whatever level that they want to and once all of that is done, then maybe we'll lock it down and say, okay, great, this is version one of this new rulebook. But even then, we're not going to deprecate the old one. I think in a way, we almost sort of want to let this new rulebook kind of bake for a while uh, before we ever consider the idea of actually switching to it, right? Um, so don't feel like this is some, this is, you know, yes, it is a big project. Yes, it is a, you know, whole scale, you know, complete rewrite of, of the rule book, but it is not something that actually should result in any actual changes to how quizzing works. And it's going to take a very long time to get to the point where we actually adopt it. If we even do adopt it, right? This is a long, many, many months process with lots of feedback loops built into the system. I know that if I was still running a district or involved a lot with international Bible quizzing, I would distrust any like new rule book that was dropped on me and I would immediately grab it and pick through it to find out any small thing that's changed and any different, like have any current loopholes closed, have any new loopholes entered. And we are going to want the other Scots out there to do this and then tell us so that we can make it better. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. We want you to nitpick. We want you to tell us any place where we've made any kind of mistakes at all, no matter how tiny they are. But I mean, there's stuff I'm going through right now, like in the rulebook, it defines unique words right now. And it talks about the concept of um, a unique word can still be unique if it occurs more than once, but it has to occur 
only in a single verse? Well, that makes sense. But as I was right looking at the definition for two and three word unique phrases, there's no similar concept for that. So I, we kind of assume that they don't exist, but um, that is definitely a way, you know, an example of a way that the rulebook can be made even more clearer so that we're not left to assume like, was this an oversight that it was less, that, that it was left out or was it intentional? And there will be those little things all throughout that have really, really small implications on actual quizzing. Um, but the increased clarity is going to be really good. Indeed. All right. Any other uh, parting thoughts? Oh, you talked about stuff like GitHub and Markdown, and I don't know if you mentioned the word English script, and it's all, it is kind of techy, but at the end of the day, it's a text document that um, has version control so that you can see every version in the past, and um, it's very similar to a Google Doc. If anyone's used a Google Doc, and you can go back versions and see who's currently editing and things like that, the concept of a version-controlled text file in GitHub is very, very similar. But at the end of the day, it is a text file. And if you just want to see a text file, you can definitely have one. Yeah, indeed. I should actually mention uh, English scripts. So Markdown, we're, we're writing most of this stuff in Markdown. And Markdown is really just a, it's just text. There's nothing fancy. There's no code behind it. But it's a way to write a text file, a plain old text file, in such a way that a human can look at that and, and infer a, a semantic meaning. Um, like that looks like a header, therefore it is a header, you know, kind of stuff. That looks like a bulleted list, therefore it is a bulleted list, stuff like that. Um, Markdown is just a specific way of writing your text such that it looks like that to a human and a computer can come along afterwards and say, okay, great. I'm going to actually convert this into HTML or a PDF or a Word document with all of this formatting, uh, understood by the computer that's doing this work, right? That's all Markdown is, right? Um, it basically just means that human beings that are non-geeks, non-nerds in terms of software have access to the source code of the, um, rule book without having to learn anything and they can read it and understand it directly themselves and contribute edits to it if they wanted to without having to learn a programming language or you know any any other sort of semantic markup of any kind now taking that to its logical conclusion in the rule book it has in the current rule book and in the, of course this future rule book that we're creating uh, there are rules around, well, you know, if you get a question correct, it's 20 points. There's this 10 point bonus here. There's a negative 10 over here. There's a quiz out concept here. You know, all this kind of stuff that are built around these scoring rules. What I've done is I've invented a language called English script, which, um, you know, for lack of a better word, I'm sure there's a better way to, to describe it, but it basically is just plain old regular English, but a very limited subset of English such that a computer can understand it almost like natural language processing in a sense, but, but even simpler than NLP, right? Um, and so by writing the certain rules in English script in the rule book, what ends up happening is a human can read those things and can totally understand what's going on because it's just English, right? It's a very subset limited version of English. So a human can just read it who understands English can read it and understand what's going on. But because it is based on this English script, uh, uh, not format, um, pron not pronunciation, the, the, basically the, the specification it be because it conforms to the English script specification, a computer can come along, read the English script that's in the uh, rule book and can compile that into executable code that runs in whatever variety of outputs that they want. So like in QuizSage, for example, QuizSage is actually going to run its statistical uh, system based on the English script that is within the quizzing rulebook on GitHub. So therefore, if at some point in the future, the CQLT says, you know what, we actually want to agree with Griffin and drop zeros from scoring. So a, a, a correct answer is worth two instead of 20, you know, that kind of thing. All they have to do is edit the English script in GitHub and QuizSage immediately just imports it and goes, okay, great, no problem. And now that's, that's deployed everywhere, you know, kind of stuff. The, now 
where this becomes really cool and powerful is let's say you're a district, let's say you're PNW, and PNW generally likes the, you know, international quizzing rule book. But you know what? We don't like the question type distribution. We actually want to have a little bit more multiple answers uh, per quiz uh, than what happens at internationals. Let's, I, I don't know why we would do that, but let's just say we, we decided we wanted to do that. All we have to do is fork the quizzing rulebook on GitHub, make that change, and tell our district account in QuizSage, use this rulebook over here instead of the canonical international rulebook, and suddenly QuizSage will do that for the PNW district. And that's where it becomes really cool because on a go forward basis, if say, you know, Central or Midwest or CMD or Westcan or PNW wants to customize their rule books in particular ways, that information, that that code in a sense, even though it's written in English and, you know, every human who understands English can understand this 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 stuff and can actively edit it and maintain it, it is also getting essentially transpiled and compiled into uh, source material for uh, stuff like QuizSage and, and any really any other program that wants to leverage it. So it and then all of this, of course, by the way, is going to be, you know, it is open source. Anybody can contribute to it, um, fork it, do whatever they want with it. Sweet. I got nothing else to add. Cool. Well, on that bombshell, we should close. Um, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. It was really awesome talking about this memorization concepts and the article that's there. I will post a link to it in the show notes. And of course, if anybody has any questions about anything, if you disagree, especially we want to hear from you, but even if you have, you know, other sorts of comments around how you memorize, we'd love to hear, you know, if you have a, you know, a different way of memorizing that than what we've been talking about, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org and you can follow us on twitter our account there is at inside quizzing and if you are so inclined you can also generally almost kind of real-time chat with us in slack in the bible quizzing slack forum uh, pound inside dash quizzing and with that i will say thank you alex and thank you scott and thank you all for listening thanks for listening everybody thanks